We would like to welcome to the stage Chris Rothwell, from, a director from Microsoft UK. Thank you very much. So good morning, everybody. Uh, it's really nice to be here with you. It's nice to see people in three dimensions. Um, I'd like some help. I'd like all of you to make sure that your eyebrows are conveying a huge amount of emotion, please, so that I know roughly what's going on. Um, but yeah, really, really pleased to be with you. And, and my session really is going to kind of build on a lot of what you hopefully saw in the earlier session. I thought it was a really interesting journey to think about all the different aspects you're trying to process here. Um, my name is Chris Rothwell. I run the education team for Microsoft in the UK. So we think about schools, colleges, and universities and, and how technology enables them and supports them in achieving all of their objectives. And the, the topic for today, I've called it before and beyond remote learning. But probably one of the most common questions that I get asked at the moment is, you know, what happens next? We, we, we're going through, we've been through this really seismic shift in how we work within schools. And we've embraced technology in a way that we hadn't before. And technology feels like that might be part of what happens. And so what's next? And I think it's a really natural question to ask, um, and particularly during a period that has been dominated by remote learning. Uh, but I want to kind of think about in this session what was happening before we did remote learning, and then use some clues to try and think about what might happen next as well. I think that we are notoriously bad, though, at predicting the future. And, and here are some perhaps entertaining examples where we've got it wrong. But it's pretty difficult to try and work out from what's happening today what will happen next. And, and I think we tend to overestimate what technology can do in the short term. We think it's all going to change our lives in the next 18 months or so. But then probably we underestimate and underinvest in what technology will do in the longer term. And, and I do think that this quote helps sum up a little bit how I feel about this, where I do think that a lot of what will happen in the future is already here. It's just only happening in small pockets, in, in little experiments, but it gives us some clues as to what will be mainstream. And I think probably all of us, both in our personal lives and in, in our professional lives in schools, are using things today that probably felt a bit rocket sciencey or a bit crazy a decade ago. And so I think that's what we're going to try and do and look at some of those clues. I, I am going to unashamedly talk about ed tech, education technology, EdTech. Um, I'm from Microsoft. It's part of what we think about all of the time. And we believe that this is part of the future of education and how learning is going to take place. But I think it's really important that we make sure that we kind of anchor ourselves in the education bit of that. Technology is here to be a servant to the education sector, not the other way around. And, and I, I loved a lot of the commentary uh, in the earlier session that kind of focused on this as part of the puzzle. This is not the answer. It's had to be the answer for a period of time over the last 18 months. It's not the answer. It's part of how we all need to work to bring education to life for our current group of young people and into the future. So the place that I'll begin, if I sort of think about you know, what was happening before COVID, I'd have used this slide, and this slide is still relevant, because the world is changing at a very rapid pace. And the main way in which the world is changing is that it's becoming increasingly digital. And the last couple of years have done nothing but pour fuel onto that and accelerated it. And every industry, every job, is more digital today than it was two years ago, and it's more digital than it was five, 10 years ago. And, and that is impacting the way that we all live, the way that we all work, the future of employment, the, the economic future. And you can see that employers are gaining people from education and broadly are telling us they're not ready. 
They don't have the skills that I need as an employer for them to be effective quickly. I am having to do a tremendous amount of training and skilling for that individual to have impact in my organization. And education as a whole sector, please think differently about the skills that you're imparting to young people and how you're ensuring that they're ready for life, work, and home beyond education. Now, th this change is really being driven by digital change. And this is not exhaustive, but three big trends from the last decade. You know, a massive growth in the availability of computing power. Um, available on all sorts of devices, from laptops and traditional computing through to phones and watches and headsets and all sorts of things in between, edge devices that tell you about what's happening in an environment. But there's just a massive expansion of the amount of computing that can take place. The cloud has really become like this normal model for delivering services now. 10 years ago, it was still a bit different. Like Customers were not sure about moving to the cloud. Today, it is the default for the majority of industries and customers to build and run services in the cloud. And they do that because a lot more is possible there. All of that computing power, lots of data storage, but also the economic model changed significantly. I don't have to invest in loads and loads of my own servers and hardware and networks to buy the services that only the very largest organizations could choose to invest in before. That changed things significantly over the last decade. All of that computing power connected to those cloud services and elsewhere is generating tons and tons of data. All of that data predominantly now is moving into the cloud and is the baseline for the investment and the progress in artificial intelligence. And that artificial intelligence honestly is required to make sense of all of that data and to tackle some of the biggest problems that we have. Every single person in this room today has used at least one service that uses AI whether you realized it or not. Your email service was secured by AI. Your voice assistant used AI. Choosing a track on Spotify, that used AI too. They're just in the background of every service and every interaction that you have in a digital environment. As we think about the next 10 years, these trends will continue. And some of the ones that Ollie had on his slide, I think, will join it. Things like 5G and really rapid connectivity in small form factors. Much more of this kind of ambient computing will be around massive expansions on data, potential big advances in things like quantum computing will open up massive changes in what computers are able to do. But fundamentally, I think that technology does this. I think it changes what is possible. And as people experience that, it changes what they expect. And probably all of you experience this, and definitely your pupils are all experiencing this, where their interactions across all of their walks of life shape what they think should happen everywhere else. You'll see this with staff, with parents, with governors that say, well, I get that when I bank online. Why can't I get it at school? I, I can do that online here. Why can't I do it here? And so all of this kind of change begins to build momentum as everybody experiences these things and then says, well, that's now how I want it to be everywhere else. And everybody tries to think about how they can continue to keep up with those expectations, exceed those expectations, and bring innovation. Now, I want to go way, 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 way back to February last year, which feels like a really long time ago, doesn't it? Um, maybe it is quite a long time ago. And, and of course, everything changed as, as COVID really arrived in the UK. But I want to go back just, just a little bit before then and think about what was happening. Because I tell you what wasn't happening, and that was remote learning. 
I actually went back and had a look. Um, I searched for the phrase remote learning in my, in my mailbox. I had zero mentions of it prior to February 2020. I had a few thousand mentions of it in 2020 as everything kind of shifted. And of course, it became the urgent priority. It was what we all had to do. For education to continue, we had to embrace that remote was the way to do it. But I feel like we've maybe lost our way a little bit in thinking that like, oh, okay, that's what the technology's for. It's about doing remote education. Oh, if only someone had said, we'd have done that. But I think when you go back to this time, people were doing a lot of other things and making it really successful. But broadly, I think it looked like this. Like most things, it kind of falls onto a bell curve. You know, we've got a small group of schools that are not doing very much. We've got a small group of schools who are really pushing the boundary. They're kind of leading the way, innovating and challenging and doing incredible work. And loads of people in the middle doing a bit, trying to figure out how they make progress, how they make it real for themselves. And so the question I was trying to ask was, well, when we go back to before COVID, what, what were those leading schools doing? What, we should be, what should we be learning from those successful deployments before we went through this big explosion of technology and remote education. I think broadly they were doing these three things. And my sort of casual observation would be that there's been a big shift in the way, a really positive shift in the way that we've been thinking about technology and education over the last decade or so, where I think we thought about it as, let's put some devices into a classroom, let's put some smart whiteboards up, and then we've ticked that technology box and we can all move on. And I think we're now starting to think about it in the way that other industries think about technology. How does it help us accomplish our objectives? And that's not just about what happens in the classroom. That's extremely important, but it's also about how you work, how the organization runs, as well as what happens in the classroom and beyond it to facilitate learning. So I think we saw adoption in all of these places. We saw technology being used to support staff in the way that they prepare, the way that they work with each other, and how they work beyond the school building that gives them greater work and life flexibility. We saw a tremendous adoption from a learning perspective. What happens in the classroom, how it expands the classroom, how it creates a more accessible learning environment for people that maybe want to engage in content in different ways. It enabled peer-to-peer -peer connections and learning and collaboration, peer feedback, video accessibility, etc. There was a lot of those sorts of things that were being used to find new ways to teach and new ways to expand the learning opportunity. And then finally, it's about how schools, local authorities, groups were being run to enable all of that to happen. Working across boundaries, simplifying and reducing duplication, getting better insights, automation, reporting, staff meetings. This is the business of running a school. It's incredibly important. Technology can help in huge numbers of ways, and yet perhaps that's often been ignored because well, we do staff meetings at 4 o'clock on a Tuesday, and it's in this room, and that's how we've done it. I think the thing that gets really exciting, though, is that when you start to put those things together, you start to see a virtuous cycle. You start in one, maybe you start to enable staff to work differently. That begins to spill over into the way that they show up in the classroom, which then spills over into the way that the organization runs, and so this cycle begins to go. And I think when we talk to people about technology and education, often we fall into this trap that it's, well, we just need one big thing that this does. Technology changes the way that we work and it embeds into the fabric of what happens in, in the schools and accrues lots and lots of benefits in lots of different places. And they might be different benefits for you than from a school nearby or a school somewhere else. But how you build those benefits together really, really matters. So that's what I think was happening. 
before this happened. And of course, I don't need to tell anybody here, but I, I don't think there's ever been a more challenging time to be working in education. I think some of the comments from the, from the session this morning, you know, people, people appreciated the role that schools and teachers were playing in a way that they had perhaps not really appreciated. Um, not just the building being open, but, but the role the school plays in the community, in, in equity of access and, and support for children and families that need it most, and how does all of that come together? And there were no rules. There was no kind of, oh, well, we did this last time, so how did we learn on that? Everybody was trying to figure it out all at the same time. And I think the response from the sector has just been incredible. Exhausting, but incredible. Um, everybody found this hard, everybody. But those schools and places that had made most progress with technology found it a little bit easier. Partly, they had things set up. That's quite a big thing if you're trying to use it to do teaching remotely. But they'd also made more progress on readiness for the staff, thinking about student accounts and logging in, maybe a bit of communication with parents. It just enabled them to go a little bit further, a little bit faster, embed that into the way that they were working. I think we could compare Scotland to some of your nearest geographic neighbours and, and say that Scotland had some investment that helped you go further and faster in this area, in having a lot of digital provision to draw on, and we saw that explode. Lots of good people using it before, lots more incredible usage of the platforms available in Scotland as a result. And yes, we saw lots of remote education, but we also saw lots of remote social engagement and support and community. And there was incredible creativity that showed about how this technology could be used in this place of crisis. We, we then did some research, I don't know, probably about the middle of last year, late last year, potentially, with an organization called New Pedagogies for Deep Learning, looking at how schools were going to chart their path out of that initial crisis response. And I really like this slide that sort of talks about this spectrum of, you know, crikey, what do we do now? Um, into, all right, we're beginning to figure it out, and into the, actually, some of this might work, and we could think about how we improve long term. And I think, you know, Ollie made a point earlier about, you know, what was working well before, what worked well during, and how do we bring the best of all of those things together? And as you look at this slide, probably you can place different parts of you and your school and your organization at different points on this journey. It's not a one-point slide. You don't necessarily be like, oh, yeah, we're in the growth zone now. In some areas, you might feel like, yeah, we feel good about where we are. In other places, we're still learning a lot, and we don't know the answer to this. And I think... You know, this, this, the discussion this morning really highlighted that this quickly becomes a discussion not just about technology, not just about how the school building works, but about how do you fuse all of these th things together in a way that does the best things for the children, that prepares them for life, and thinks about picking the best of all of those options to help. So what happened to this bell curve? I, I think broadly, that sort of happened. It sort of shifted up a little bit and probably got stretched a bit. I don't think there are many schools left that are genuinely choosing to say, no, this isn't for us, we're not doing it. I think there's still plenty of schools who acknowledge there are big challenges in their particular context and that they're still struggling to bring this to life. But I think the whole sector has just had a crash course in CPD. I was with a customer yesterday and we were talking about this kind of dynamic. This was definitely in no manual for how to go about making change. 
but it's been quite effective. There's nothing quite like a crisis in order to drive change. But now we have to think about what do we do beyond that and how do we you know, pick the bits that we liked, change the bits that we didn't, and remember to keep the things that we loved from before as well. And, and the analogy that I've been using for kind of where we are right now is that we're at a plateau. I think the response to COVID in the first sort of year, 18 months or so, felt honestly like we were climbing a mountain. It was hard, hard work. It felt relentless. And I think people felt like they were reaching the top. They haven't reached the top. None of us have reached the top. But we're on a plateau. And the good thing about a plateau is it's not relentlessly uphill. It's flat. We're a lot higher than we were, but we're getting to take a breather. And I, and I feel like as a sector, collectively, nobody is going to say, yes, we feel like we're taking a breather. But perhaps relatively, it feels like we're getting to focus on some core basics and put some good practice back into school and spend time with each other. And that's a great place to be. But we're now on a plateau where we can see much further. We can see the other hills we might want to climb in the future. We can see the scenery that we might want to explore next. And so one of the things that collectively we all need to work out is from this plateau, where do we go next? Which are the bits we want to explore? Which are the bits that we might want to choose a different path? And so what is going to be next? And, and you know, ultimately, I'm going to talk through a few different options here, I suppose. But basically, I'm going to take some existing technology and, and, and solutions that we see and try and extrapolate how I think that will, will play out and have impact across education. I'm going to start here. This is not a new thing at all, and many of you may even use this. This is a product, this is a Microsoft product called Microsoft Lens. Lots of other people do something similar. This is your ability to take out your phone, take a photo of a page in a book or a printout, and have that real-world artifact turned into a digital artifact. So the reason I'm talking about this is because I think the ability for us to mix between and, and move the physical into the digital is going to enable lots of new scenarios for our, to, for our interactions. I think one of the most compelling of these is that we uh, spent some time a little while ago with a school who had a particular area of, of specialism around supporting pupils that were partially sighted. Their um, approach before was that the teacher prepared the work for the class. That then got given to the teaching assistants, who then took that physical hard copy and either retyped it or redrew it or photocopied it on much bigger sheets of paper, but physically manipulated it so that it was accessible to the, to, to the young people that had a limited sight. We showed them the ability to do this. Their process then went, take a photo, put it into OneNote, use Immersive Reader, zoom in, suddenly it's accessible and it's the same for everybody else. It's like materially changing both the young person's experience and freeing up a ton of time. And so I think this idea that we'll be able to move between physical and digital and blur them a little bit more, I think this is just one example of where that will happen much more in the future. In the same vein, mixed reality. I think over the last year or so, we've started to see a growth in the number of scenarios and interesting use cases as to how mixed reality is being used across multiple phases of education. And I, I really like the quote that is on this slide because I think this idea that when I'm really involved in something, I get to explore it in a slightly more physical way. I understand that in a way that I don't if it's a printed image or an explanation that I maybe don't get to experience in the same way. And so this idea that you can start to mix 
reality, see things in deep virtual reality, blended reality, those sorts of scenarios. It helps you get access and experience things that are pretty difficult to access. There is, it's quite difficult, I think, in the standard biology lab to get access to a beating human heart. I think it's still frowned upon. But this is a way for you to be able to manipulate it, explore it, go and see exactly, oh, get how that works. And actually, I can begin to size it. I hadn't realized just how different those were. How, can I see the, the workings of an internal combustion engine? Perhaps that now sits with, with history rather than technology. But the idea that you can start to engage in different environments, in historical environments, bring those to life. And there'll be specialist head, headsets like these but there's also the ability to do basic versions of that just using standard devices. Show me what this would look like in this hall. Give me a sense of size and scale. Let's try and manipulate it and see what it might look like. Play with that, experience it in different ways. And so I think this idea of overlaying you know, digital artifacts that look like they're arriving in your uh, physical world, I think will help people grasp subjects and explore them differently. This is um, an application called Reading Progress. Um, it's part of Microsoft Teams. Um, it's a way for you to issue an assignment to, to students. Um, you give them something to read. They then record themselves reading it. Um, the bit that's really interesting here, and the reason that I'm choosing to talk about it, is that there is an, a tremendous amount of AI that is going on in the background here. And I think this is an indicator of how AI is and will continue to augment a core classroom and teacher-led experience. So the AI in the background here is doing a lot of things. Once the student is recording itself, the AI is, is listening to that pupil, and it's taking their spoken words, and it's translating that into machine-readable text. It's then displaying that, and it's coding it. It's saying, here is, here is a word that we think you mispronounced. Here is a word that you just missed. Here's a word you had to try again. Here is where I think your pacing was weird. And as a teacher, I can come and see this. I can then choose to correct the machine. I can choose to ignore the machine, and I'll mark it myself. But I can choose to listen to it, say, actually, the machine got that pretty right, or I want to change that. And then the really interesting part for this is that then the teacher gets to see data for the student over time and data for the class. What are the bits that we're really struggling with? Where do we need to spend time together? Where do I need to spend time with you as an individual child? And of course. We, well, first of all, we know that reading, reading fluency is an extremely important indicator for life success. But we also know that every teacher would love to listen to every pupil read and to support them one-to-one, -one, but they can't. This is a way of taking that core design from, the, from a teacher and enabling them to reach more pupils with uh, guided learning, where they then get some feedback and coaching to help them go and improve. And I think. You know, AI, the promise of AI has always been you know, pretty bold. But these sorts of very narrow, specific examples of where AI is being used today, there's lots of potential for that to be a way to expand and augment the impact that a teacher can have. I think a couple of years ago, maybe even longer, there's been a perception that as technology rises in education, the role of the teacher diminishes. I, I think the pandemic has just squashed that idea completely. You know, it's shown that, yeah, technology is going to be part of it, but the role of the teacher becomes, if anything, more critical to think about how do you support and, and enable all of this diverse learning to happen under your kind of design and, and, and instruction for the whole class. 
you can't do everything though, and picking and choosing where technology helps you go further and faster, I think is really important. And these sorts of applications and the use of AI is going to enable that. There was some discussion earlier about the use of apps. Those sorts of apps can begin to do very specific coaching and guidance in specific scenarios and help the teacher focus elsewhere and, and support where needed. The last area I'm going to talk about is data. Uh, I talked about the data you get from reading progress. Um, this, again, is kind of a, an insights application within Teams, but it's just an example. There are lots of others that are doing this kind of work too, where as things become digital, you start to get to be able to listen and, and monitor a lot of the signals and work that's happening just by default. So I think, I think teachers have an incredible handle on their class and who's doing what. But this is giving them the, an additional layer of insight as to what's happening within the digital world and is there anything that I might have missed? Anything that I should pay particular attention to? Anything that I should build into my planning for what needs to happen next? And, and then alerting the teacher as to, we don't know, but we think this is an area you should look. Here's a student whose engagement has changed over the last week or so. Are they okay? Maybe. There's no harm in asking the question. Maybe that's something that you wouldn't have necessarily spotted in the classroom. You definitely wouldn't have spotted in a remote teaching environment. But the technology can start to spot the changes in behavior over time and present that back to you as a piece of insight to take some action. Now, maybe it's spotting work trends that are not totally positive or supportive of long-term success. It wants to guide you to that. Whole class things that you might want to do differently. This is a very narrow application of it today. We're starting to see there's a customer of ours in, uh, in the middle of England who's been doing some really interesting work with data, taking not complicated data sets. They're taking what sits in their school management system. They're taking what sits in their safeguarding system, taking another couple of pieces of data, and they're bringing those things together. They're doing that because they are in a really, really challenged area of the country where gang crime and gang recruitment is a very real issue for them and their pupils. And they started to spot ways of identifying students from attendance and performance and safeguarding incidents that are at highest risk of gang recruitment. This is not complicated data work. It's just starting to look for the trends in the data that we already collect. And that, I think, is the really exciting potential here that when you start to bring a whole picture of how the, the child, the family comes together, you start to be able to get insight that helps you predict, take action, and intervene. I think everybody that works in education knows when, when we get to a child at the right time, there's a tremendous amount that we can do to support them. But we can't get to everybody at every time, and the technology can help signpost and help us catch more of the people at the right time whether that's from a safeguarding perspective or a learning point of view or just a, a, an overall support, we want to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, oh, that's not a touch screen, so that's not going to work. So hopefully that's just like a small taster of some of the technology that is here today in little bite sizes that I think is all going to grow. And I think you know, that this picture is here because I think it's my, my idea, if you like, of where it leaves us today. We've seen incredible change as a result of COVID. But as I said, this, is, this, this was never in the change manual. You know, we would normally talk about, like, let's make sure we think about the strategy and the planning and what do you want to accomplish as a school. I thought Stuart did a really nice job of saying, hey, you've got a blank sheet of paper, what do you want to do? That's the where we would have wanted to begin. 
then we'd have started to talk about, you know, where does technology support you in doing that? Where do you start, you know, deployment? Then how do you think about training, adoption, learning? The pandemic meant we went straight to deployment and we figured out how to get through. So we sort of built a house and it looks pretty good, but I don't know if we've necessarily got the most solid foundations. And so I think a priority for all of us in, in the sector is to think about, okay, we've got this new house, it looks pretty nice. Some of the things I like about it, some of the things I don't, but let's make sure it's not gonna fall down. Let's not go back just because we can't keep up what we've, what we've got and it's not the part of how we think about life as a school. What do we see from schools that do a great job of that? I think leadership is, is incredibly important. Um, and, and setting that vision, that strategy, having leadership that is committed to this path is, is such a force multiplier that I think broadly I'm able to predict schools that won't complete their path by knowing that the head teacher isn't talking about it. And so having that senior leadership, sponsorship, engagement, prioritization is, is so important along that path. They're not the person that does it all, but I think they have to be supportive. I think then that matters in terms of the culture within the school and the wider environment. Is this the way that we do things around here? How do we think about CPD and teacher adoption and supporting each other, trying things that might not go that well today, recovering from lessons that didn't quite pan out as we'd hoped, learning from our colleagues, learning from our colleagues in different local authorities as to where they're making great progress on topics that we think are important. All of that is, of course, in, in your own unique context. You've got to think about your school, your priorities. And I think, you know, I often say that you know, when, when people are asking me about what, they think what I think technology should do in school, I typically say, well, what's your school improvement plan? That's what technology should do in school. Like, if it's not aligned to those priorities, it's really not that helpful for you. So I think you know, like your context, what it's trying to accomplish is, is the single most important question to get to. And then the capabilities to actually do this. You know, probably you all have all experienced this over the last 18 months. Certainly we felt like we experienced it. You know, as schools began to close, we started to see a lot of very basic questions. How do I do that? How do I log on? How, what button do I press? What? Why does that look different? Hang on. They've evolved tremendously from that kind of like really basic how do I do to a bit of a which application should I use for this? How are people approaching the, teaching this topic using this combination? And I think the exciting part, which I hope is here to stay, is that we now get to pick and choose between what we do digitally and what we do in person and the blend of those sorts of things. But the capabilities to actually do that in a classroom with a group of children, that is nerve-wracking. You know, doing something for the first time, changing the way that you're gonna teach, embracing new, new methodology is, is, is hard. And, and that is a constant and ongoing cycle that we all need to work through how we do that. And so these are the things that I think are going to be important over the next, I don't know, 10 years. I think one of the things that I think is really fascinating about education is that it is permanently a futuristic industry. I, you know, I, I have a six-year-old son. I think probably he's going to enter the workforce in about 2037. Every time I say that, I have to check myself, because 2037 sounds like a really long way away. But that is the workforce that he is needing to be prepared for through his education. Um, he's just at the beginning of that. Uh, so inherently, we're all trying to think about what the world will be like so far in advance, and are we preparing people for that? So lots of, lots of things on the slide. I think the first is that this mixture of physical and digital space will change. 
I think um, looking at some of the school images from the session this morning, and I think all of us would understand, like physical space really matters. And it matters in the sense of, does it have Wi-Fi? Does it have a network? Do I have space? But it also matters like in, in your heart, your soul, your stomach, like your visceral reaction to space. Like hear the students talk about their school. Yesterday I was fortunate to spend the day in Glasgow meeting multiple customers. And I think I, I'm gonna guess here and say I probably saw buildings with at least a 500 year range in ages. And some of the old ones inspire you in a way that the new ones do and some of the middle ones don't. Um, and I think like, thinking about the impact of that space for children and young people and, and, for, and for teachers really matters. And thinking about how digital sits as part of that. In, in, a, in a modern workplace, I was with a, a non-education customer yesterday as well. They can walk into a meeting room, connect their laptop, and connect to cameras and screens that mean that people not in the room get to feel like they're in the room. Wouldn't that be cool in teaching hybrid across your schools? But it needs a building and hardware that supports that. And then safe digital space that allows people to feel like they can work and learn and share and build some of those skills and capabilities they're going to need in their life. Fundamentally, we know that we're going to have to think about pedagogy difficult, uh, differently. Um, you know, if we're just teaching, I, uh, the story that I tell at the moment is that uh, we visited a, a school um, that was basically doing worksheets on a laptop. I think it's a really upsetting thing to see. It's not, oh, okay, great, you're doing a worksheet on a laptop. But are you really thinking about what technology can do that helps children learn differently, or are you just not printing? Not printing is a good thing to do. Helps out the teacher on the workload side. It's, you know, it could be worse, but it's really not thinking about how are people learning, how are we teaching, what's the change that has to happen there. And I think, you know, reflecting back on the session this morning, it does start to connect all of these things together. How do we think about space, the way that we teach, the digital experience? They all interrelate and think about that kind of experience we want people to have. We want all of these experiences, both physical and digital, to be accessible and inclusive to everybody. I think one of the big wins that we've seen unintentionally from the, from the pandemic and remote learning was that people who, you know, dyslexic students as an example, and there are lots of them about, like, I don't have to copy anything off the board. This is awesome. Like, I love this. I can put this into a, a you know, immersive reader. I can make it much easier for me, and I don't have to copy anything. I'd quite like to carry on, please. Um, being able to translate different languages, whether that's for the, the pupils or for the parents, really important thing to be able to communicate with people. And so thinking about how digital and physical space enables that accessibility, and I think that connects to devices. You know, there was some conversation about devices, one-to-one -one schemes. You know, the device, it's just a device, and yet it's you know, the window into all of these sorts of services. And if I think one of the things that we experience very painfully as a result of the pandemic is not everybody has the same access and opportunity. And if digital is going to be a core part of how education takes place and that experience, everybody has to be invited. And I think that matters at home, I think it matters at school, and it matters that that supports every child and every learning opportunity. Underlying all of this, I think, you know, I started by talking about the world is changing, industry is changing, jobs are changing, demands are changing. Everybody needs digital skills. And one of the advantages that we see of, of using technology more in a school is that kind of by accident, students, people, they're building digital skills because they are working in that environment. Um, I think it was Ollie that showed the picture of group working happening across multiple tables, sort of simulating 
you know, remote group working. That is our life. Now, that is the way that organizations are now working. Your ability to work with people in projects collaboratively, creatively, solving problems, thinking about long-term solutions, that is exactly what employers are looking for. And we're building those skills by default as we put more technology into as part of the way that we think about learning. And then, of course, it has to be sustainable. Um, yes, the buildings need to be sustainable, but the way that we build and run technology also has to be sustainable, from the devices all the way through to the services that we run. Um, you know, Microsoft, we have made a commitment that we will be carbon negative by 2030. The way that we run our, our services, our big cloud services on behalf of customers, guarantees that anybody that is running those services today they are much more uh, carbon, uh, carbon negative running with us than, rather than the energy being consumed by you running them yourselves. But all through to the device lifecycle, recycling, right to repair, all of these things are going to matter uh, because they're gonna matter to the planet, they're gonna matter to the students, they're gonna matter to the families that you're part of the community. So that brings me to the end. Um, you know, hopefully we started off by talking about the way the world is changing, drivers for digital across every industry how technology was being used in schools before COVID became a thing and remote learning became the answer to everything, how that's kind of tilted everything in the sector and what we, where we are from a recovery percent, you know, that, that kind of journey of change, and then into a few clues potentially as to what technology will enable in the sector in the future, and then wrapping up with some of the, the considerations and the things that, that you as leaders and, and participants in the sector all need to think about. But I'll, I'll wrap up there and we'll take any questions and I'll say thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was very interesting, Chris. Um, if anyone has any questions for Chris Rothwell, can you ask them now? It is also lunchtime. No pressure, but like, should, everyone should ask questions if they like. <coughs> oh, one. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for all of that. Um, I, I suppose the question maybe not even so much for you, but it might be even for the right-hand side. Um, having been some of the people who were through uh, all of that experience that Chris talked about, would any of you like to pull out a, a highlight or a low light of, of what you experienced whenever you were learning in the ways that, uh, that Chris spoke about? It's a, a great question. Well, one thing that I found most helpful about um, using the Microsoft 360 uh, applications, well, I am dyslexic, and I was using technology even before we moved to our new building and started adopting it en masse, and I found that when I was using technology, it made me stand out quite a lot, and it was quite stigmatising, because I was like, oh, he's standing out, he's using a laptop, he can't read, that kind of thing. It was, it's quite horrible. But now that everyone's using a device, I think that it it makes you blend in more, if that makes sense. And it makes you feel like you're like everyone else. You don't need additional support in the classroom. You don't need a scribe in the classroom with you. You can use, um, for I use, I own an um, interactive reader. I'm sure there's plenty of Microsoft um, programs that you can use. And I find that, for me anyway, has been brilliant. It's been completely groundbreaking. These are skills and programs that I'll probably use throughout my life. And being introduced to them at such a young age, which I mean, I'm quite young, I'm 17 now, but um, 
Hamster quite young, I think, set me in good stead for going obviously off to university as well, where I'll continue to use those um, applications and those um, kind of skills. So that's been the best thing for me anyway. All right, yeah. Any other questions? No? Going once, going twice? All right, uh, is it lunchtime? It's lunchtime. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day.